0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. This episode of Rendering Unconscious is a talk given by Dr. Manya Steinkohler and myself about our book, Psychoanalysis and Violence Contemporary Lacanian Perspectives, which was published by Routledge in 2019 this talk was presented at the 40th annual spring meeting of division 39 of the american psychological association division 39 is the society for psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic psychology you can visit the website division39springmeeting.net for more information about past conferences as well as the upcoming 2023 conference, which is called Our Beautiful Struggle, Destruction, Creation, and Psychoanalysis, which is looking to be a stellar conference. As always, you can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23carl. Thank you so much to all our Patreon patrons. Our Patreon community is very vibrant and I appreciate it so much. And thank you, of course, to all of our listeners here at Rendering Unconscious podcast. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Trapar Books, 2019. You can find for more information at the publisher's website trapar.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T.net. Hi everyone, I'm Vanessa Sinclair coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm Manya
1: Steinkoller, coming to you from New York City.
0: And thank you so much for having us. We're really glad that we're able to participate in the conference, albeit virtually, this year. Um, thank you to the organizers for inviting us. So we're here to talk about our book from uh, on Rutledge on Psychoanalysis and Violence, Contemporary Lacanian Perspectives. And I guess we'll start by talking a little bit about how this book came about in the first place.
1: So, yeah. Um... But Vanessa and I were thinking a lot about just about our, our current world and this is around what 2014 something like that right and uh, the shoot, school shootings in, in Connecticut had just in, in Newtown had happened and uh, a friend of mine was teaching there and that affected me a great deal and um, I started to work on the school shootings and that was like one one beginning of this. And we had, and Vanessa and I put together a conference called uh, violence and its, or civil violence and its discontent, or psychoanalysis and its bliss contents about violence, right? And thinking about the new anxiety, like social anxiety and world anxiety, existential anxiety has, has become a kind of anxiety about the constant enjoyment and the constant pressure of the superego to
0: enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, um, I was working in a hospital in Brooklyn, um, and I was working in the hospital outpatient HIV clinic. And I was so upset at seeing the way that my patients were being treated. There was like systemic violence. I felt systemic racism, um, the violence of their being over-diagnosed and overmedicated, um, And I really was upset about the way they were being treated. And I wanted to do anything I could to kind of raise awareness about the problems in the American mental health care system. And um, one of the things that disturbed me most working in that hospital was the fact that so many of my patients passed away, they died. And there wasn't meetings done. And any hospital I'd worked at before, you know, if a patient had died, there was always a meeting between the medical doctors, the nurses, the staff, anyone who worked with that patient to kind of talk about what had happened and if there was anything we could have done differently to prevent their death. But that never happened at this hospital. And that was really disturbing to me. And while I was working at that hospital, I started psychoanalytic training and I met Manya through different psychoanalytic events that were happening in New York City and she had already trained as an analyst and had been working and been training in France and her perspective on the way she viewed patients was so fundamentally different than what I had been taught that it really changed my life and my perspective.
1: Well, actually, to add to that, um, when I, I was very fortunate to be able to have an internship uh, with Ghidana in, um, uh, in, in, in a hospital, a south a uh, psychiatric hospital. South of Paris. And it was kind of not just a hospital in France. It works a little differently. You have a kind of a sector and there's a hospital, there's a clinic, there's a psych- psychological therapy center. It's kind of like a whole world all grouped together. And I, um, I ended up in France. I have a, a PhD in comparative literature. I ended up in France and I, I was a Fulbright and then I met all these Lacanians, whatever. And uh, and I I I didn't know really our I'm from New York but I didn't really know our system I knew like th- this is great like they they get to do art all day they get it's it just it, of course you know we we dealt with very sick psychotic patients and and um, and this the whole system was built and it was built by somebody like Guy Donna and it had these kind of big psychoanalysts and there were several of them in France um, and in Europe kind of where the the culture is taking care of their psychotic population and the state is helping as well and when i came back to new york to live because and, and work i i was so surprised at the difference i was like oh my god because i i, I ended up at meeting a patient at bellevue once and i and I, I had no idea of how radically different it was, and this question of violence really has not all, but it has something to do with the psychotic population and our social relation to that population. So that's how Vanessa and I met, and that's kind of what gave birth to the, that. That and, and Newtown, I think, is what, what gave birth to the book. Little did we know. Little did we know that the capital riots would be right here, to, to, and that and that for, uh, four years—it's more like five years—or it feels like a, a century of Trump uh, to. To, to, to show, I mean, we were looking at the book last night and both of us were so startled, but how how current this is, even if it's uh, several years old, the book is like, it could be, it, it, no, nothing got worse. And it's funny because I just, as I, as we were preparing for this or just thinking about doing this, I read, a, I was thinking, wow, you know, school shooting. Cause I wrote an article in the book on school shooting. Wow, there hasn't been any, I'm thinking cause I'm so stupid. There hasn't been any school shooting in the past because I, who has heard about school shooting on on, Yes, we've heard about some mass shootings, but school shooting oh uh, and then I read online that there's there have been more school shootings and more mass shootings since Trump than ever and that 2019 had the more mass shootings in the United States in, in, in any country in history. so so we, the only reason we didn't hear about them is that we had to hear about Trump's tweets every single day, and the kind of violent, so the the violent kind of tenor of the entire social order was constantly being um, uh, exploded in 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 violence every day.
0: Yeah, I didn't even realize that. That's amazing. Really astounding, (laughs) but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, so we did our first talk um, on the violence of kind of the American mental health care system and the difference between the mental health care system in America versus France, for example. Um, That panel was in October of 2012. And then we had this conference on psychoanalysis and violence in uh, 2015, and then the book came out, the, the hard back in 2018 in November, and then the, the paper back in January of 2019. So I guess we'll read some from the introduction of the book. Would you like to start or would you like me to start? You can start. Today, violence is everywhere. We are inundated with it, exhausted by it, bombarded by images and reports of it on a daily, even hourly basis in real time with minute-to-minute updates via breaking news alerts on our iPhones, constant notifications and emails, from terrorism to the war on terrorism, from the exponential increase in mortality due to opioid overdose to the war on drugs, from mass shootings to the helplessness felt by the impossibility of enacting protective gun legislation, From school shootings by disgruntled, neglected teens, to the failure of the mental health care system to address the often glaring warning signs. From constant coverage of the tweeter-in-chief, who regularly overturns every principle of democratic and humane tenets of government, only to replace them with a tyrannical whirlwind of inappropriate, impulsive, narcissistic, and highly aggressive rants, to hostile contention regarding the reporting of the very facts of the news. Is it fake? Is that what really happened? The crisis in authority is just another way that we can't get rid of it, make it go away, contain it, or limit our access to it.
1: So uh, I'm going to read and summarize a little bit in this introduction. Um, you know, just if it's not just, well, we, look, we wrote this pre COVID, right? But uh, even the kind of um, isolation bubble had already been going on with technology, and 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 um, and and also what we hear all day, like the like the hurricanes and the and the weather and the climate and the um, and the. I mean the 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 and and the gun control and the, the lack of gun control. So we're we're like we're constantly uh, Black Lives Matter racist I mean the racist violence is like uh, it's unbearable to like live with this every day and we live with this constant anxiety and the reason we we talk a lot about the social order in the introduction is to think that it's not like the violence is happening by crazy people you know in fact in fact that's one of the points in my article in the in the the introduction we wrote together, but in my article on Adam Lanza and the Newtown shootings, you know, everybody wants to look at who is the school shooter. Let's figure him out when he's two, and then we can know that that's that person. And it's like this, I mean, in a lot of the research, there's the wish to know the shooter rather than the wish to know oneself. And this kind of paranoid idea that the shooter is the problem doesn't look at the culture that's making these school shooters, you know? So that's like a, a a lot of what we're thinking about. So that was like one idea. Another that's important about, about, about in that culture is just the idea of like, our just do it culture. You know, we live in the culture of enjoyment of the superego. We have to do everything we have to achieve all the time. Um, you know, remember, like one of uh, my students always loved that one remark of Zizek, that the only reason to do a psychoanalysis, there is only one reason to do a psychoanalysis. He says, it's like to enjoy ourselves a little less <laughs> right. Like some, some, some idea of like some limit, right. That we can, we can get through speech and through being listened to. Um, but we, we have, a we got a lot of people who are really smart to contribute to this book and we were very, deeply grateful for that, that they were interested in the idea. And one thing that they were all telling us about at the beginning is that how much violence, these are all psychoanalysts were all over the world, but especially in France, they were like, violence is really a specifically not a psychoanalytic concept because psychoanalytic concept thinks about language, about the unconscious, about an unconscious formation, about the work of analysis to make us s- subject to language and to, to dreams, to to formations of creativity in some way, right? And violence is the stopping of that. And so that was a big theme for for thinking about this and thinking theoretically about it is the violence in the psyche itself, like the the violence of the superego, the violence of primal repression um, uh, and the violence of kind of primal repression as a kind of traumatic experience,
0: Vanessa. No, that's a great point. And I think it's also a great point that you made that, you know, the society is so focused on these individuals and how to like figure out an individual when, and they're not looking at the larger systemic issues and the the sickness of the society that creates all these individuals makes people act out in these ways. So should we go through some of the different chapters? Yeah. First, you know, what can we read the piece about, um, uh, The letter from Einstein to Freud? Yes, sure, go ahead. Well, it's Freud's response. So Freud did talk about violence and specifically we quoted this piece that um, there's a correspondence between Freud and Albert Einstein called Why War? And this is what Freud writes in response to Einstein. Such then was the original state of things, domination by whoever had the greater might domination by brute violence or by violence supported by intellect as we know this regime was altered in the course of evolution there was a path that led from violence to right or law what was that path it is my belief that there was only one the path which led by the way of the fact that the superior strength of a singular individual could be rivaled by the union of several weak ones. So that's where Freud is talking about how law comes into play. It's people collectively coming together in, in the face of these brute force. Violence could be broken by union and the power of those who were united now represent law in contrast to the violence of the single individual. Thus we see that right is the might of a community. It is still violence ready to be directed against any individual who resists it. It works by the same methods and follows the same purposes. The only real difference lies in the fact that what prevails is no longer the violence of an individual, but that of a community. But in order that the transition from violence to this new right or justice may be effected, one psychological condition must be fulfilled. The union of the majority must be a stable and lasting one. And that's what Judith Butler writes about in her chapter. Maybe that's, maybe we should say something else
1: about that point, right? Walter Binjamin in his article on violence that we, we mentioned also talks about all contract points to violence. So if we like a lot of, it's a tendency, like in popular thinking, to think of law as the stopping of violence, right? And our whole book is thinking about law as constructing violence, law. And so, I mean, let's also remember that Trump ran for office as the law and order president, and never have we been subject to such kind of like rampant aggression, you know. So, so really critiquing the idea of law, which 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 Freud does, you know, um, right? And he and that maybe the last point is what made me want to talk just now What Vanessa read of Freud's when he talks about that um, that that the, the community it, like it has to be maintained and like agreed to this idea and in a way that's that's why the the divisive nature of this aggressive narcissism was so um, uh, toxic for for all of us uh, recently um, um, before maybe we we before Judith Butler because it's it, that's kind of important. We we have a kind of opening little. We have actually cut two opening pieces. One is by Gerard Pomier, and it's talking about um, Parkland and, and and the teenagers kind of taking up the um, the banner of, of 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 gun violence. And he's he's thinking about the. It's it's nice a little piece. It's like two pages long, but it's really thinking about America's history as, as, as from the Puritans. And, um like he's kind of tracing back that radical super egoical uh, uh, enjoyment um in in into america's founding and and he's and and also kind of supporting the youth movement uh uh in in uh, of the anti of the anti um anti nra if you want um that that one and the second piece is by uh, jean jacques Moskowitz who um I, I, and he he wanted to answer. I, I, I said I sent him that Vanessa and I were putting a book together. Do you want to contribute? And he goes, "What's it about?" I said, "I guess it's about why do we kill." And he goes, "Ah, oh, I take that question. I'll I do something for you on, on this question. I will do something." And he writes, um, uh, "He he he says that the jouissance of murder annihilates not only the life of the victim, but but the unconscious of as the site of difference, like." that so killing, he, he talks about killing as, as, as destroying, like destroying oneself, not just destroying the other, but you're, it's like destroying every place of ambiguity in oneself by, by, this, by this violence. Um, he also talks, which is kind of interesting about how cinema, like he's a, a big cinema person, how cinema works through violence and allows us to see this um, in some of his, in the small readings he does in that text. Um, Vanessa, you want to talk about Judith Butler's piece?
0: Sure. And then Judith Butler is chapter two. Um, And let's see. She talks about, by the time Freud develops the death right in 1920, he'd become increasingly concerned with the destructive capacities of human beings. He addresses the dangers of nationalism, the phantasmatic characteristics of citizenship, the problem of authority, the origins of violence and war, and the dim prospects for peace. Butler points out that at work in Freud is an operative metaphor of the psyche as a legal system unto itself, passing judgment, asserting authority, banishing foreign elements, and melting out forms of punishment. Butler's contribution underlines that the psychic sphere is already political and that the distinctly human capacity for destructiveness follows from the ambivalent psychic constitution of the human subject. The,
1: the, you're going to see how the, like, these authors are kind of tracing themes. So the book, although it's very diverse, it's also kind of tightly knit. Uh, in the following chapter, Juliet Flower-McCannell um, talks about the uh, recent the well now not so recent events in Charlottesville and thinks about the why war correspondence between Freud and Einstein and underlines the point that Vanessa and I were were, were mentioning earlier about Freud's uh, emphasis that it's the binding erotic life preserving drives that that protect the social body and that Freud demonstrates that um, that this might of the community has to be kind of founded in those those life preserving drives um, in in binding them right she also she talks about the um, the alt right and the kind of celebration of violence as 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 a kind of imposter of a new the new neo fascist if you want a imposter of law um, and she sees it as a kind of parade of imaginary power like like and critiques the imaginary um, uh, And like like Moskowitz's piece, um, contending that violence is a way of eradicating difference and eradicating the unconscious, violence and the kind of imaginary that it sets up tries to eliminate the idea of a psyche to begin with. Um, uh, 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 McCannell also uses Hannah Arendt's idea of robotic violence to kind of as a way that eliminates, like, you know, in Eichmann in Jerusalem, like to kind of eliminate subjectivity altogether. I'm just following orders. I'm not I'm, I'm not a subject. Right. Um, and, and and refers to Arendt's famous critique of totalitarianism. Vanessa. We're talking right.
0: about Todd. And then the next chapter, we have Todd McGowan, who's a film theorist and Lacanian theorist. And he talks about the evolution of violence in society in terms of the development of technology. He cites Foucault, Agamben, and Esposito, as well as analyzes several films of Buñuel. Uh, he notes the shift from punishment to discipline and from discipline to security as modalities of biopower from Foucault. Today, overt forms of violence have been exchanged for the more subtle and insidious as the surveillance of private behavior has trumped the dissuasive quality of the public execution. Addressing the dismissal of sexuality in Foucault's original theory, he asserts that today desire and sexuality need to be reinstated more than ever. In the regime regime of biopower, the inherent violence and control work their way into the maintenance of life as a means and ends of themselves Subjects no longer go on living, but must monitor and preserve their vitality at all costs. And Todd talks about this all the time, how like just preserving life and making sure you're alive and surviving is not really living. You know, people always need something more than that to feel alive.
1: Well, maybe that's a nice segue into like the next chapter is the chapter I wrote on Adam Lanza. And I I was, I was struck because I, well, because I had a, a, f- a friend in in Newtown, but then I, I I read and read about him and about the story, and um, and how many positive, how many, how many chances there were for, for the world to intervene, that didn't intervene well enough, and, and or and, or sometimes at all. So it kind of is it kind of underlines the way in America we. You can kind of divorce yourself from everything, and you're entitled to do that because it's it's your right. You know, I want to right. So there's something about our 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 world that kind of allowed that to be that I wanted to think about. Um, so I, I I be I begin. I will talk a little bit more about this because I wrote it. I, I, but I, I, it was called Lone Wolf Terrorists, and it's interesting that of course Lone Wolf. I mean, there. Um, I was on a panel uh, talking about um, uh, uh, the the Norway and the 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 the, the, air, the airline in, in in Germany and like the, the kind of psychotic killers by themselves who do these kind of grand crimes and um and you know is what is this lone wolf right so it's it's a way we think of these people but what's happening in the around them that's allowed that to happen so I, I um so at first it, a lot of the school shooter kids in America are also um, teenagers who are obsessed with school shooting. They, there's a fan club online. There's like the dark internet where they all hook into, uh, and I've had patients interested in this as well. So um, I've, so I've, I have some experience with teenagers interested in this um, and what it's doing for them. Um, And, and also why there's no other way to find like, um, like there, the, usually there's a kind of loneliness, aloneness, bullying culture, everybody, the kind of popular things people talk about. In the case of Adam Lanza, he's also had a, a mother who w- was devoted to his care and wanted him at home and would do everything for him so he wouldn't need anybody else. And the, the he was seen as a child. He was seen since he was three constantly. Um, I'm not going to talk in detail about the case because you can read the article, but one of the things that was striking was how much you could just ignore any professional opinion and, and any professional advice um, because you have the right to your child, right? So there, there's like like not, no social order that can kind of intervene and help. Um, and and that, that seemed to be really striking in this case. Um, and then to just digress for a moment, there's so much work done on school shooters, as you can imagine, sociological work, psychological work. Um, and, and, and and everybody's looking for the cause of the school shooter, single parent families, uh, problems with masculinity. Uh, I mean, to, 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 to tell you, I read a lot. And one of the most stunning things I read was that got, that, that having a gun, like our, our access to guns in no way, I mean, there were people on... In the NRA, writing articles on school shooting, saying that, actually saying that uh, access to guns in no way makes school shooting uh, increase. Right. So, I mean, the, the idea that like the the idea that people can say that is and think that is is was stunning to me. Right. Um, so, it, um, you know, there's the good guy with the gun idea, and that's very popular in. Hard to believe, but true. It's actually popular in a lot of the articles that are getting published on school shooting. Well, it's not the gun, it's other problems, it's mental illness. Like what is, like as though mental illness doesn't have to do with a social order where it's okay to have uh, semi-automatic rifles and buy them in a store, right? Um, so, uh, so I, and like the, the, one of the, we can think of, think of the, the shooting as a kind of radical acting out and the idea that, like, there was no, like, at a certain point, there becomes no choice, right? So how do, we, how do we help all the people before they have that position where there's, there's kind of, it's the only thing they can think to do, right, um, to exist? Because there is the idea that, of not existing and of that uh, aloneness of living in a, in a in a basement in his own house with no no windows with nothing you know and nobody nobody intervening mm-hmm. I mean the function as you know I mean the function of the father is to intervene the father wasn't there blah 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 but I mean a lot of people have the father who's not there but the, it's like the society wasn't there and what was striking I think in that and and also listening to Adam and what he said was really striking um and how he's quite intelligent and very intelligent about it what happened to him, there was a famous radio interview where Adam called up when he was, and he said he was, he was concerned about a, a little chimpanzee that, that had been domesticated and brought up like a human child. And you can see already what's going on with this kid. And he, um, and he says, chimps shouldn't be in civilization. This is Adam talking on the radio. Um, and, and that's why the chimp killed somebody. The chimp ended up killing somebody. And Adam said, that's why, because chimps, and he said and then he said the chimp could have been a teenage shooter right so clearly adam is identified with the chimp for adam civilization feels like utterly false and utter something he's constricted to do not something that's welcoming him or that's that's that he has a place in right um so so again all the all the all, all the ideas were there and and all the warnings thing, the warnings I'm not even going to go the all the warning signals were there. What struck me was also something about clinical failures that I wanted to mention because um, Adam did see a lot of clinicians. And one of them, when he was a teenager, Adam asked, can can my father, I want my father to come here with me when I talk to you. And it's an interesting request from a teenage adolescent patient, right? But the therapist said to him, Um, No, he cannot, you have to come yourself and you're wanting him to come because you want to control the treatment and Adam stopped going, right? Um, maybe, Maybe it's important for us to realize that maybe Adam controlling the treatment would have been a really good thing for Adam to do. At least he had control over something, right? um, at least he had a a way of arranging something where he could speak. Right. So I, I felt like the series of clinical failures were like instructions and how not to treat your psychotic patients and how to like, maybe go outside of the, the official, official, like we're so busy keeping our, I mean, one thing I learned in the hospital is like our official frame is not necessarily helping them. You know, it's a neurotic frame. So, uh, like being creative with that uh, and allowing, allowing other ways for those people to do to, to those patients to express themselves and to find a way to speak. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons, isn't it, I mean, I, I was reading, I don't remember where the other day, Lacan was saying, isn't it amazing that, uh, that people don't, People come to analysis all the time. They're in a private room with their analyst, and they don't kill them. And yeah, it's in the transferred seminar. And Alakam was like, "Isn't it funny? We don't like, most of us don't usually die by our patient's hand in our in our offices." And he's like, "Why? Does anyone ever ask why?" And he says, "It's because they get to talk, like they get to talk freely, right?" So it made me think that that our like our job, our clinical job, is to find ways where people can speak as easily as possible, and that that that's that's like the best like remedy uh, for this, at least that we, that we have, that we have to offer. Okay. I guess that's
0: all I'll say. Absolutely. And I think your point is really important that, you know, that therapist needs to listen to the patient. And if the patient in that case is asking for his father, you know, maybe that would have one brought the father in and maybe he would have been more involved in what was going on and also allowed him, you know, to feel safe and able to speak So yeah, listen to the patients and adjust ourselves accordingly instead of feeling like we need to be so rigid with our frame or or our theoretical orientation, you know. Um, Yeah, so just a few more of of the contributors to this book. Franz Kaltenbeck is a French psychoanalyst, and he wrote a chapter called The Tortured Child, um, which is about child abuse, and he used some uh, clinical examples. And then uh, Vincent Lacour, also a French psychoanalyst, uh, he wrote about video games, and and it's called "Click and Destroy: Video Games in Clinical Work."
1: In that article, was say something interesting. I I spoke to Lacour in France, and he works with a lot of those video gaming kids who are like addicted and playing five million hours a week, whatever, and doing nothing but playing video games. And he talked about working with them and working with other. Clinicians who work with those kids, so they end up playing the video game with the the kid for uh, sometimes for hours, um, and like working on it, kind of almost almost like working with autistic uh, patients, mirroring and being in the video game with them, kind of like through there, like finding that that's the way to to begin some some clinical or meaningful analytic work. So. So it's not about getting them away from the, from the, like you have to not play the video game anymore if you want to work in analysis or something or in therapy, right? Because those kids sometimes come to therapy and they just sit there and they're just like, why am I here? I don't, I want to go back to my video game. So the idea of playing with them was, was a big solution and had major effects.
0: Yes, yeah, so joining them and being with them where they are and working from there. And do you want to talk a little bit about Martine Foray and violence and repetition?
1: Um, Martine Foray is a, a psychoanalyst in Senegal who started, well, she's French and she was trained with them in the Manoni, um, like it, with the children, the whole idea of children in, in Paris, which has a long tradition. And she was trained there, still goes back to work there, but started the first psychoanalytic clinic for children in Senegal. And she, um, she was very interested in, um, in 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 the way one of the like jobs of the psychoanalyst is to allow repetition to happen, and not to like close down repetition because like repetition is a kind of work of the unconscious. It's it's like where something can't be symbolized, but it's what's being worked on in analysis. And so, if the analyst is closing down that work because the analyst is uncomfortable with what's happening, it's not going to allow the patient to 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 move right. Um, and she like she talks about that, and she also talks about in. Um, in uh, in Africa, the the question of paternity and how that's and how that's important and and um and has a specificity to it. So th- those those ideas, um,
0: yeah. wonderful. And then uh, Patrick Randman has a chapter on the DSM and the violence of uh, overdiagnosis and this whole insanity within DSM having like five hundred and something disorders in it now at this point, um, which is really, really important. Um, (laughs) Sandman delineates how the formal model of psychiatric diagnosis with racist and colonialist accents gave way to a psychiatric diagnosis induced by pharmacology and as a consequence to the hope that the naturalization of mental illness as a disease of the brain would put an end to the segregation of the mentally ill. This hope has vanished and the disappearance of psychiatry will not put an end to the peculiarity of mental illness and the segregative violence that many patients still suffer.
1: Vanessa, why don't you tell about Todd Dean as well?
0: Yes, and then Todd Dean is a psychoanalyst and psychiatrist in St. Louis. And um, he wrote about uh, particulars and universality. And um, he wrote about case examples of working with um, patients who were refugees fleeing from Bosnia. And um, he talked about his work with them and just kind of the futility of feeling like being in the hospital clinic. And, you know, they want you to fill out all these forms. And you're there with somebody who's like new to the country, been through Countless traumas, and you're supposed to be like doing all of this bureaucratic kind of thing with them that feels so futile and is really useless. And how he ended up kind of working more psychoanalytically with patients within that kind of structure and being able to help them kind of speak and, and open up in that way instead of just feeling like they're being put through this endless kind of system of bureaucracy.
1: Uh, speaking of that bureaucracy right um, we, we, we follow with another clinician the the, uh, the the one that I worked under in paris who who okay. writes about um, and, and by the way he, I mean, he runs he ran for many years a a big hospital that had i mean people would take the person who just tried to blow up the airport and bring them straight to his hospital. so we spent a lot of time treating and thinking about these kinds of that kind of patient right. Um, he, he 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 talks about our uh, he put in context like our contemporary need for security and absence of risk and how that like that's that's especially our our fear of the mentally ill and how that affects affects the treatment of of, of these patients. He writes about violence as what closes down the psyche and stops the work of elaboration and speech and. Um, he also talks about the importance of the analyst as the place of, or analysis of the hospital, but some place where there's a place that speech is possible and address is possible. Um, and he 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 also discusses Winnicott's notion of the holding environment. So it also shows you like, I mean, I think that Americans sometimes have this idea of Lacanians as they're all like in their own little world in France, but especially the, the serious clinicians are like not, they're not like religious card-carrying people, right? He talks about Win- w- Winnicott's holding environment, and um, and that that the origins of paranoid knowledge are in everybody's early dependency. Um, and he and he, he he kind of he also reverses Winnicott's position, and he shows that the first violence is the other. It's that that we're kind of c- confronted with violence in infancy by language, by the other, by the jouissance of the other. Um, so that in a way he's humanizing all of his patients to say that it's not them and us or or the psychotic if you want and us it's that it's that we this is something we're all dealing with and neurotics have a way of structuring these and that they're not always helping our world and or our about our ability to think that that's the are kind of our more paranoid ideas about violence about illness about our idea of security are inhibiting our own ability to think.
0: Vanessa. Absolutely. Um, and then we have Irish Lacanian psychoanalyst Carol Owens and uh, Stephanie Swales, who's a psychoanalyst in Texas. I hope she's okay right now. Um, they wrote about ambivalence and um, the other through talking about zombie films, <laughs> which is really fun, um, but also very, they make amazing points. Um, For example, Lacan's insistence on the problematic nature of the basic Judeo-Christian injunction love thy neighbor fully brings out the attendant obsessive fear of harassment that accompanies liberal tolerance. The evolution of the argument put forward by Owens and Swales is illuminated through cinema and in relation to the shifts in political tone from the 1960s and 70s till today. They posit that pre-9-11, the foreclosure of ambivalence resulted in the return of the ambivalent figure as a zombie from another dimension, and that post-9-11, the neoliberal disavowal of ambivalence has produced its perverse counterpart, the zombie next door. So
1: the zombie next door, maybe that's a nice transition to our next, the next text, which is by Genevieve Morel, um, who runs Aleph in France. She's a French psychoanalyst. She she, you know, we, Americans love to think of the evil Islamic terrorist, whatever, you know, whatever, the, and we have all of that unbearable, uh, shameful uh, Muslim racism that we just had to had to bear. Um, she said, well, you know, the whole fundamentalism and the move to fundamentalism and the terrorism is really, and of course we see this now, but very clearly, not that we didn't know, but she talks, she goes back to our own history of the radical sixties. And uh, she does, a kind of close reading of Susan Stern of the Weathermen, and um, and shows domestic terrorism as part of the kind of ethos of the '60s, and talks because Susan Stern left biographical writings. Um, Morell writes about um, her, like Susan Stern gave her name herself the name Sham, like like underlining like something about the falseness of culture and, and something about the punishing superego. She, she absolutely wanted to adhere to the group to be reborn as and the ideal imist, image of a feminist revolutionary. So like in Morell's article in Juliet McCannell's article, and in my article, we, we're thinking about this like imaginary construction of how, how the, how somebody can identify with it to kind of answer um, a, a, a question of being, um, like, let's say, uh, speciously, perversely, wrongly, right? But how it's like it feels like the only one left in a, in a given situation for them.
0: Yeah. And then um, Ali Risa Tahiri is in Toronto and he wrote a Chapter called "Breaking the Spell of the Slave Ro- Revolt Immorality from the Subruption of Identity and Difference, to the Repetition of the Pair Consistent, and then the last chapter was Patricia Garavici uh, writing about psychoanalysis in Argentina and specifically from 1976 to 1983 and talking about how psychoanalysis has really taken hold there. She thinks in part because of all of the revolutions and because of the um, government dictatorships that it's been a way for people to have a voice and constantly disrupt the the narrative and disrupt the social order in the and the chance to make themselves heard. Um,
1: making oneself heard. Maybe that's like the theme that Vanessa and I've been talking about today. And I, I wanted to in um, in Gidana's article he, he quotes Antonin Artaud, who, as many of you know, was hospitalized a lot of his life, right? The, the, the actor, writer, uh, surrealist. Um, and Artaud writes, I believe everyone has read enough of my texts since I was hospitalized to realize that judging by my writings, my letters, I am not ill. I have never been ill. Um, and he, he goes on, um, and I, I, wa- I want never to hear again a doctor tell me, Monsieur Artaud, I am here to correct your poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that's, the word in French is redresser. It's not exactly, but it, it, it's the idea of like, well, you did something, wrong, you know what I mean? I, I have to correct your poetry. I, I feel like Artaud is telling us how, how not to act uh, and giving us um, uh, and, and, and speaking from, from experience.
0: That's a good place to stop. I think so too. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank, and thank you me. so much for having us. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion of the book on psychoanalysis and violence, Contemporary Lacanian Perspectives, Edited by Manya Steinkohler and myself from Routledge 2019. Links to the book and everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. As always, you can find me on social media at underscore, at Instagram and Twitter, and at TikTok at Dr. Vanessa Sinclair23.
2: now they were back to being awkward again. Her, the present situation, by dampening the feeding toned portions of thee, often see severe anxiety and depression, because the patient adapts to a fact that it's cooler in that school I go to, and even cooler in, is therefore always potentially subversive to those attachments. Attachment even at to be, which is then solidified by the repetition of similar experiences that validate that impulsive makes quick decisions without carefully considering the consequences of the decisions. Transference as psychoanalytic method were indisputable to forensic psychoanalysis really began with Freud's theory on dreams rather than creating a body of not knowing how to rid myself of them polluting my insides where I've no right to be but this is no ordinary case you know I loved that girl and wanted to marry her but although that's all past and gone help feeling anxious about her all the time, down and says in a low voice to his wife, stretching out his hand, Pierre, there, look, 30 yards away from them, the head of a white fox, sexual response and the female orgasm, unquenchable fire although it is a force it is a work that leads to an intimate the body is prepared it stimulates movement pose that issue from or intelligence hazardous problems are created how was it even possible that a woman asked herself while realizing that watching this expected it, but there it was, they just kept on, my consciousness changes, and I'm able to, what the other requires, in my blood, Lilith, in my body, Lilith, in my, and you, Sunday night dresses, dying, back on a stretch, attachments, Kerouac, Ginsburg, Burroughs, Herbert Huncke, and Neil Cassidy